Hey, everybody. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're going into the vault. This is not a Saturday vault episode. We're airing it in place of one of our regular Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. Uh, This week, just to cover some time off, this episode originally aired on July 25th, 2019, and it was called Electric Microbe Land. Uh, This was uh, suggested as as a vault episode by a listener not too long ago. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, originally this one was a uh, summer of 2019, but we're giving it to you again on the very last day of, uh, of 2020. So let's have a listen. Enjoy this regifting. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we figured we'd start off today talking about our favorite electricity monsters. Robert, what's your favorite electricity monster? Oh, you know, my, my, my just gut instinct answer is to go with Blanca from Street Fighter. Uh-huh. You know, he's the green skinned. And I'm, was, I, was, I looked into this a little bit. I was never sure why he had green skin. Apparently uh-huh. there's some alleged backstory involving chlorophyll. Um, but I don't know. He ends up with, he's like a beast creature, a beast man uh-huh. with green skin and like bright orange hair. Wearing board shorts. Wearing board shorts. <laughs> uh, and just and kind of doing this, this, this kind of hulking uh, uh, pose, uh-huh. uh, bent over, and then he can produce electricity. He basically has the powers, since he's kind of an, you know, an amalgam of various Amazonian things, he has the powers of an electric eagle. Mm-hmm. And so he can shock his opponents that way. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, there, there are a few really good electricity movies. By really good, I mean really bad, from the 1980s and 90s. Did you ever see The Pulse? I don't think I ever did, no. I think there was another horror movie called Pulse, which was about something else. This one was about, uh, it's like some family living in a house in like a regular suburban neighborhood Mm -hmm. in California in the 1980s, and an evil burst of electricity goes goes out through the the mains. Uh, I don't remember if there's like an evil storm or like an alien arrives or something, but for some reason there's this pulse of, of killer electricity and it goes into their house and it turns all the appliances against them. Oh, so the like TV starts trying to kill them and everything. A real maximum overdrive scenario. Uh-huh. Okay. But it's like, it's sold as like the, the malevolence is delivered directly through the electrical wires. Mm, the wrong voltage or something. Yeah, huh? I guess so. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Like, what are some other examples of electric uh, creatures or humanoids? And I mean, obviously, I thought of our of, of electric Christopher Lambert from uh, from Mortal Kombat. Oh, that's right, another Raiden. fighting game. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but so many so often is the case. You see individuals with uh, some sort of pyrotechnic uh, mm-hmm. ability. You know, like uh, we one of uh, a film that we've talked about before has been uh, the the Toby Hooper film in which uh, Brad Dourif. Uh, played a, a like a pyromaniac who could catch things on fire with his brain. He's got like uh, like uh, pyrokinesis, but he doesn't want it. He's not like a you know a, a villain out there like Pyro in the X Men, just throwing fireballs wherever he wants. It's more like every he's kind of like the Hulk. He's like Fire Hulk. Yeah. Every time he gets upset, he starts catching things on fire. But he also like burns the heck out of himself too. Yeah. Which wasn't a nice twist. And of course, Brad Dorif is wonderful. And in that film, there are at least portions of it where he's it's, – it's a rare film where Brad Dorif is the lead uh-huh. and he's sort of playing a, a regular human in some of the scenes. So it's interesting to see. 
But but so often it's the case you, you see fire-based powers in these characters and creatures mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to electric-based powers. And it's kind of weird when you think about it because, as we'll discuss in this episode, electricity is more tied in with biology than fire. And even from the human perspective, you know, who among us has not harnessed the power of electricity by by walking across a carpeted floor in the wintertime and then shocking somebody with a touch? You do that on purpose. Uh, I have in the past done it on purpose. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's pretty Not phenomenal. an ounce of guilt on your face. <laughs> well, one of, one of the things I do like to do uh, when it gets cold, when the conditions are just right, mm-hmm. um, have my son go down a, a curly sw- slide, build up a static electricity, and then give me a high five on the way down. Oh. And at, at times, it has been stiff enough to like leave a numbness in my hand. Oh, for a yeah. Few seconds, like you when know? you feel it in your wrist, kind of in the bone. Yeah. That's uh, creepy. That's some real shocking power. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been like an actually really scary electricity monster movie. The other main one I was thinking of is one of my favorite cheesy mid, mid-career Wes Craven movies, which is Shocker. Oh, yes. Uh, I think that's from 1990 or so. And it's got Mitch Pileggi, or Pileggi, the guy who plays Skinner on the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays the villain. He's like a serial killer who does some like evil black magic ritual to turn himself into electricity after he gets killed in the electric chair. That's right. I remember seeing yeah. I never saw it, but I remember seeing the boxes for it and he's in an electric chair on the, oh, the you cover. Sh- you should see it sometime. It's a laugh riot. Uh, <laughs> and he's, oh, he's just like acting, I mean be- galaxies beyond normal levels of acting. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> uh, it, would you say it's an electric performance? I would say he okay. is a live wire. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think you're right about the, the idea that maybe electric monsters should be more biologically intuitive than uh, pyrokinetic or fire-throwing monsters or even fire-breathing dragons uh, because, you know, it, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the use of electricity by living organisms predates the technological uses, predates, you know, Tesla and Edison or even Franklin and Galvani and all that. Like, all kinds of animals use electricity in various ways. Now, there are the really noticeable charismatic uses of electricity, like uh, how sharks and rays have electrosensory organs known as the ampullae of Lorenzini, which they use to sense very faint electric currents transmitted through water by potential prey animals. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the electrogenic organisms, the like generally aquatic organisms that emit strong electric currents, maybe to stun prey or to deploy as a defensive weapon. And these would include things like electric fish, electric catfish, and rays. Yeah, yeah. The electric eel is certainly the electric animal par excellence. Right. Uh, though though uh, it's always worth reminding everyone that it's not really an eel. It has more – it's more related to a catfish. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know there were electric catfish, but I didn't know the eel was one. Right, yeah. I mean you look at it – if you, you're fortunate enough to see one in a tank somewhere or, or in the wild – uh, you know, you're going to notice that it doesn't really look like an eel. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's 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 a very curious looking creature. You ever seen a defleshed eel skull? Ooh, I don't know that I have. It's one of the. I usually don't leave them on uh, when I go have sushi. You should you should look up an eel skull sometime. It might be different for different species, but at least some eel skulls are like the most metal thing in nature. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we today we wanted to to think about electric organisms, but instead of focusing on these 
larger organisms that use electricity, maybe in a sensory capacity or as a weapon of some sort. We wanted to go down to zoom in with the microscope and to take a look at the world of microorganisms that deal in the currency of the holy fire, the amber, the electricity. Uh, so I just wanted to start by saying, uh, by giving a shout out that I got the idea to do this episode after I read a really interesting article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times by previous Stuff to Blow Your Mind guest, Carl Zimmer. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was a tremendous episode. It was great chatting with him. I'd love to have him back on the show sometime. We yeah. should see about that. If we get him back on the show, then he becomes a friend of the show. That's oh, the way yeah. it works. Is, is it two appearances? Two appearances make you a friend of the show. Yeah. So just one is previous guest. I almost said friend of the show, but I didn't <laughs> want to presume. I think those are the rules, yes. <laughs> uh, so, of course, electricity, you know, it's generally thought of as the flow of electrons. You might have other ways of defining it. You could maybe define it other ways in terms of electrical potential, like a positive or negative charge. But generally, if you've got current, if you've got electrons flowing, that you can think of that as uh, some form of electricity. And there are ways in which the metabolism of our bodies could be considered electric. For example, what is actually happening when we breathe I don't know if I've ever thought of it quite this way before, but I was reading an article in New Scientist from July 2014, which quotes the UCLA uh, microbiologist Kenneth Nielsen in characterizing the most basic biochemistry of life as a flow of electrons. So basically think about it like this. You eat carbon-based compounds. You take in that chemical energy and that's going to be molecules like sugars. And these molecules, these carbon-based compounds like sugars, have excess electrons. And then cells in the body break down those compounds and they pass on the extra electrons through a series of chemical reactions that power the body, in part by making uh, adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is the chemical energy transport molecule that, uh, that captures the energy obtained through the breakdown of food and then uses it to power things that happen inside our cells. I've, I've sometimes seen ATP characterized as an energy storage molecule, but that's mm -hmm. not quite right. That would be more like fats or sugars or something. ATP is like a, it's like a car for energy. You know, it carries it from one place to another in the cell. And apparently the flow of electrons is an indispensable part of making that ATP that powers our cells. But eventually the extra electrons, since they're flowing, they've got to go somewhere at the end of this chain of chemical reactions. You can't just keep building up extra electrons in the body until you become a human Leiden jar or you become the guy from Shocker and you just electrocute people by touching them. So you have to pass on the electrons onto a molecule that will accept them. And in our case, that molecule is oxygen. You breathe in the oxygen and that oxygen we breathe in goes around to the body to the cells and it accepts those extra electrons that are the waste product of our metabolism. Uh, and it bonds with carbon molecules and then you breathe out this waste product as CO2. And to uh, quote from this researcher Kenneth Nielsen as, uh, as quoted in, in New Scientist, that's the way we make all our energy and it's the same for every organism on this planet. Electrons must flow in order for energy to be gained. This is why when someone suffocates another person, they're dead within minutes. You have stopped the supply of oxygen so the electrons can no longer flow. So choking somebody is kind of like a, it's like putting a resistor in the electric circuit. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, this is all getting down to the fact that we're all essentially bioelectric organisms. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's not just us. Like 
This is basically the rule for all kinds of life forms, from humans to coconut crabs to lots of single-celled organisms. Pretty much every organism needs to create an electron flow by taking in food with excess electrons and then running that through a series of chemical reactions to extract usable energy for cells and then dumping those electrons out into some kind of electron-accepting waste bucket like oxygen molecules. Uh, and this is even true for bacteria where for many species, oxygen must be present as this terminal receptor for the electrons at the end of the metabolic line. But there are some prokaryotic organisms, single-celled organisms, that can't or don't use oxygen. And these are known as anaerobic bacteria. And they, they live in places where oxygen doesn't reach or where oxygen is very limited. And examples of this might be places like deep in the sediment along a river or buried in a seabed or even I've read deep underground in oil wells. I mean, try to imagine that, that yeah. far underground that like life is thriving in some way. We've also talked about them thriving in some, um, uh, you know, human-created sewer environments. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all these environments, especially these environments that are cut off from the surface by by mud or sediment or even by vast expanses of dead rock. So if the electrons have to flow for life to go on, how do these anaerobic bacteria survive without oxygen molecules to accept the excess electrons at the end of the metabolism and basically to breathe out? How, you know, where do the electrons go when they're done with them? So here's where we get to a, a bacterial discovery story. So in the mid-1980s, I think around 1987, the American microbiologist Derek Lovely was out pulling up samples of sediment from the Potomac River. Uh, and one of these samples from the Potomac River, it was around Washington, D.C., contained one of these weird single-celled organisms. It was a bacterium called Geobacter metalloreducens. And like other bacteria, this bacterium would begin the electron flow of its metabolism by consuming organic compounds that had excess electrons. For example, ethanol, which is alcohol. So there's some ethanol in its environment. It can eat that. But it would end its metabolism by passing the excess electrons off into iron oxides, which are rust. So this is a life form that can survive by eating grain alcohol and breathing out rusty iron. <laughs> yeah, I've read in, in Lovely's um, uh, some of his papers that when they're working with it in the lab, they essentially just feed it vinegar. Yeah. And that, that's, that's all it requires. Wow. So if you have to breathe out into rusty iron... Would you rather survive by eating only grain alcohol or by eating only vinegar? <laughs> um, I, I feel like vinegar, for, for me, vinegar would probably be healthier. <laughs> for you? For me. My, it's my personal choice. But I am, uh, I'm not a microbe, so. Uh-huh. Just as an interesting side note, in this process, the bacteria, uh, Carl Zimmer notes this in his article, the bacteria help transform the regular old iron oxides, the rust particles in their environment, into the naturally ferromagnetic mineral known as magnetite. So that's like, you know, the strong natural magnetic rock you might find in, in sediments around the world. And these bacteria help produce that magnetite by, by, pu by pushing off these electrons into it, which sort of magnetizes it. Now, we've been speaking kind of metaphorically by calling this bacterial process breathing because it's not breathing in the exact same way we do. Like, 
the bacteria don't have respiratory systems with lungs and alveoli and all that. We breathe by sucking in oxygen and then transporting it around our bodies to the cells where it needs to go and then breathing out the molecular waste products of our metabolism through the same gas exchange system in the lungs. But the bacteria don't have lungs. They don't suck rust particles into the body to allow the electrons to attach to them. Uh, and so what's going on there? Like uh, according to Carl Zimmer's article, it took Lovely and his colleague Dr. John Stoltz in their labs years to figure out how this respiration process was taking place. And what they discovered was that instead of like sucking in the rust particles and breathing them out, Geobacter exhaled by putting out electric wires. Yeah, this is amazing. And of course, when we we're saying wires, we're talking about microfilaments. Yeah. Uh, but they do, in a way, function like electric wires. I mean, they're they're a conductive, they're a long filamentous kind of uh, conductive material that is there to transmit a flow of electrons between potentials. So you've got a buildup of electrons as a waste product in the bacterium, and then you've got a a lower potential thing out there that can accept them, like maybe a deposit of iron oxide, mm -hmm. and you pump the electrons out through this wire to the iron oxide outside the cell. Yeah, and we're t these things are tiny, too. We're talking, what, like three nanometers in diameter? Yeah, extremely. Though they can get pretty long. Without, yeah, well, yeah, they can get pretty long. Uh, in some cases. In some cases. And then we'll, we'll get into other species later, but there are species with, with, uh, with larger filaments. Yeah. Uh, so when you're a geobacter and you sense the presence of iron oxide in your surroundings, basically what it, it seems like you do is you sprout out these microscopic little filaments, uh, each one known as a, a pelus, plural pili. And bacterial pili are fascinating in other respects too because for one thing, they play a role in the bacterial process known as horizontal gene transfer. And we've done a, a podcast on this before. This is a really interesting phenomenon. But basically, bacteria, they don't have sex in the mm -hmm. way that like sexually reproducing eukaryotic animals do, right? right. Uh, they reproduce asexually, meaning they make exact copies of themselves in a process called binary fission. They split off and create two daughter cells, uh, not by mating with other individuals and combining their DNA to create an admixed offspring. But Despite this, despite them not having sexual reproduction, bacteria do engage in something kind of like sex. And this is this process of horizontal gene transfer where bacteria can meet up and share genetic material between one another. And this doesn't always work out great for us because, for example, it is one of the main methods by which bacteria acquire DNA for antibiotic resistance. We just did an episode of uh, our other podcast, Invention, about the invention of antibiotics. Antibiotics and antibiotics are a you know a miraculous invention of the 20th century. But one of the big problems with them is that over time the diseases that we're fighting get better at overcoming these medicines. Yeah, I, th I think the way we put it in that episode is is with uh, with uh, penicillin and uh, and other antibiotics. We're we're stealing a weapon from the you know the eons old uh, uh, war between uh, fungi and bacterium uh -huh. and uh, and we we've stole the weapon but the but the the war continues on and the 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 the, the evolution of their warfare continues yeah and, and 
and the way we use the fungal weapon mm-hmm. sort of accelerates the the arms race. It like provoke. It's kind of in a Cold War style, like yeah. provokes the other side to uh, go, make go with a with a buildup, you know, an arms buildup, and that seems to be what's happening on the bacterial side now. Yeah, we stole uh, like a fungal catapult, uh-huh. uh, but now we're, we're we're quickly advancing into the age of uh, uh, where a fungal trebuchet would be uh, more appropriate. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we have to find those those fungal trebuchets or develop them ourselves. I, I hope we do. But for the uh, but for the bacteria to share their own trebuchet plans, uh, one one of the things they do is this horizontal gene transfer process. Uh, specifically, this process known as conjugation, where two bacteria meet up and they're like, "Let's hook up," and they extend a pelus between the donor bacterium and the recipient bacterium, and this little hair-like filament hooks them together so they can share plasmids, which are little segments of DNA. And pili also enhance the virulence of bacteria by helping them bind to cells in the host body. And this is the case in disease-causing strains of bacteria like Streptococcus or in E. coli. The, the, the pilus kind of hook them on to the cells lining your the inside of your throat or in your gut or wherever it is they're trying to infect. But in the case of Geobacter, uh, the researchers who worked with Geobacter originally concluded that the pili were being used for another purpose entirely, and that purpose was the off-routing of electricity into electroreceptive molecules in the environment. So to, to picture this as a – again, this is going to be a very crude metaphor. But imagine if you were to breathe instead of by sucking oxygen into your lungs and exhaling CO2 – by shooting electric wires out of your mouth into the environment, which would then attach to the toaster and the TV and pour waste electricity out of your lungs into those appliances. Oh, that's pretty good. That sounds like a good electric uh, alien creature for a future film or a past film. I, I mean, I'm I can sure imagine some movies done it. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine Dan Aykroyd playing a character <laughs> that does this. Uh, you know, back in the '90s or so. Oh, you know, there one of those '90s like uh, kind of grimy computer monster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that one that Jamie Lee Curtis was in about like a killer computer virus that like just puts gross wires everywhere? Oh yeah, this was. Uh, I think Donald Sutherland was in it. Yeah, um, it's on a ship or something. Something. It was yeah. really bad. Yeah, it was like a sort of – it was kind of a take on the thing but with uh, this this cybernetic blend of uh, like wires and flesh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like a computer virus that decides that Earth is uh, – that, that humans are a pathogen and they must called be virus? destroyed. I think it was. Or pathogen? Maybe yeah, it it's called virus, okay. yeah. Uh, and I should note as a, as a follow-up to what I was just saying about the, the bacterial pili, it's not fully settled – whether the geobacter actually use Peely as their electric wires or whether they use Peely exclusively. Carl Zimmer's article notes that the Yale physicist Nikhil S. Malvankar and colleagues believe that instead the bacteria use dedicated wires made out of organic compounds called cytochromes. Uh, but the fact that geobacter does pump electrons out through biological wires of some sort doesn't seem to be in dispute. It's just there are different ideas about to what extent they're using different structures as the wires. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about the idea of electroactive bacteria, bacteria that in some metaphorical sense breathe by releasing excess electrons that are the the end product of their metabolism into uh, 
things in their environment like little deposits of iron oxide and they do this by sticking these wires out of their cells that uh, that connect to things and, and they can pump the electricity out through those wires. But it doesn't stop there because researchers have also discovered that in some cases, the electric wires put out by metal-reducing bacteria like geobacter uh, would not just go out into iron oxide in the environment or into other metals in the environment, but sometimes these wires would go out and connect to other species of electroactive bacteria. And so the same way that geobacter metaphorically breathes by putting out electron flow, some species of bacteria can metaphorically eat by taking in electron flow. And this energy intake allows the bacteria to convert carbon dioxide into methane, kind of like how plants use uh, direct energy from the sunlight to power the chemical reaction that turns carbon dioxide from the air into the sugars and the carbon compounds that make up the bodies of plants. One, I'm sure I've said it a million times on the show, but one of my favorite crazy facts about plants is they make their bodies from the air. They don't mm-hmm. make their bodies from you know the dirt or something. It's it's the carbon from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that becomes the wood. Oh wow! Beings of, of air and sun, basically. Totally. Well, and to be fair, and like water from the ground and other minerals oh, yes, and stuff. Yes. But primarily, yes, <laughs> primarily of air and sun. So yeah, so if, if these bacterial species that, that do this, if they pair up, they can form these like cross networks of underground bacterial wires where one species feeds another with its waste electricity. So I, I was reading a 2016 BBC article on electroactive bacteria by an author named uh, Jasmine Fox Skelly. And th- this article mentioned that it-, it was not long after Lovely's discovery of the electrical properties of geobacter that the UCLA microbiologist Kenneth Nielsen, who was uh, quoted in that article earlier describing all of you know the respiration of life mm-hmm. as the-, the flow of electrons, before Nielsen found another electron excreting bacterium, this one in the Oneida Lake of New York State and published his findings in the journal Science. And this was a very similar story, except the bacterium here was not Geobacter. It was Shiwanella oneidensis. Uh, in, in much the same way that the Geobacter metaphorically breathes iron oxide, this bacterium breathes oxygen when it's available, but when it's not, it breathes manganese oxide, pumping electrons out into the external deposits of the compound, though it can also pump electrons out into other metals like iron. But um, unlike Geobacter, which uses some form of wire to conduct electricity. Quote, Shiwanella appears to shuttle electrons out of their cells using transport molecules called flavins and stepping stone proteins embedded in the outer membrane called cytochromes. So there we've got the cytochromes uh, being involved again. So we're starting to build up a picture that there are many different ways for bacteria to kind of breathe electrically or be electroactive in one way or another. And these tend to be bacteria that uh, that don't have access to air or don't or only do this when they don't have access to air and so uh, so Carl Zimmer's article also discusses the work of Danish microbiologist Lars Peter Nielsen a, and this is a different spelling of Nielsen different Nielsen yeah this is a two Nielsen night but it's uh, once an in E-A-L and one's an N-I-E-L. Personally, no offense to the other guy, but I'm more of an N-I-E-L kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. It it stands out a little bit more. (laughs) 
so this guy, uh, Lars Peter Nielsen, discovered an electrical bacterial ecosystem within the, the mud from the Bay of Aarhus. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. It, it's a coastal area on the western side of the main peninsula of Denmark, Aarhus, A-A-R-H-U-S. So basically, within a core of mud sample here, you'd have bacteria lower down, down in the mud with uh, anaerobic metabolism. Again, that means oxygen-free. They don't need oxygen to live. And they would produce hydrogen sulfide as a waste product of their way of life. And hydrogen sulfide, we've talked about, I'm sure, plenty of times on the show before. It's It's a poisonous gas that smells like rotten eggs. It's just like, it's bad stuff. It smells like death. You'd commonly find it in places where biological material is being decomposed in the absence of oxygen. So again, anaerobic decomposition, like you will smell this stuff wafting up out of swamps and out of sewers and stuff like that. It, it was uh, one of the byproducts that people had to protect their faces from when they went down to fight the soap dragon. Oh, yes, the fatbergs. Yeah, the fat. Oh, I don't know why I said protect their faces. I mean, like, wear gas masks, <laughs> right? I don't mean, like, it's going to hurt their faces. It's going mean, to jump out, uh, out at them and try to attach them <laughs> to their faces. It's like the face hugger. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Like, it's like you don't want to breathe it. Um, now, of course, in order for you to smell hydrogen sulfide, in order to smell this nasty bacterial byproduct in a marsh or a sewer, the gas has to bubble up to the surface and waft out, right? But Nielsen noticed that it wasn't doing that in this mud. Something was consuming this poisonous waste product before it buoyed up to the surface of the mud and escaped. Uh, but as Carl Zimmer writes in his article, if other bacteria below were breaking down this hydrogen sulfide without oxygen to aid in the metabolic process, again, you would have an unacceptable buildup of electrons. And so this excess electricity would have to go somewhere. And what they found is exactly what you might guess. The bacteria were extending biological electric wires built out of thousands of cells surrounded by a conductive protein sheath, uh, kind of like the, you know, the, the sheath you might see on a copper wire to protect yeah. it, except it's the other way around. In this case, the sheath is what's conducting the electricity. So it's kind of like if you had like plastic surrounded by copper, I guess, which would be a bad design for a wire. Uh, but it works in this case. And these wires are known as cable bacteria. Uh, the cable bacteria allow the waste electricity to flow out to the surface. And once the electrons reach the surface, there you've got surface bacteria, which have access to oxygen unlike the bacteria below uh, because they're on the surface, of course. So these bacteria use the electricity to cause a chemical reaction between oxygen and hydrogen, the waste product of which is water. And to quote from Carl's article, uh, quote, and cable bacteria grow to astonishing densities. One square inch of sediment may contain as much as eight miles of cables. Dr. Nielsen eventually learned to spot cable bacteria with the naked eye. Their wires look like spider silk reflecting the sun. Ooh, neat. Beautiful. And you can look up pictures of this, actually. I agree. They, they do look kind of like spider silk. They're kind of uh, uh, these glistening, almost invisible filaments that can kind of catch the light in certain ways. Uh, very beautiful. But w one cool thing that I guess we have to consider is they're discovering that these uh, electroactive ba bacteria are 
found all over the place. They're abundant in ecosystems throughout the world. And given how abundant these electroactive bacteria are, it's not inconceivable that they play a major role in regulating various forms of geochemistry, like maybe regulating what kinds of minerals you would find in the topsoil, producing magnetite, uh, maybe regulating the chemistry of the atmosphere or regulating the chemistry of the oceans. Right. So, I mean, yeah, the take home here is that, that this is not just some rare, obscure thing that you encounter in only like, a, you know, some sort of bizarre, extreme environment, uh-huh. but they're, they're, they're found all over and could have a, a very important role. Now, primarily the examples we've been looking at so far uh, have been bacteria that sort of pump out electricity in order to metaphorically breathe. You know, the electricity is this waste product. So the extra electrons have to be disposed of and to something that will accept them. But we already mentioned that it does go both ways. Uh, like uh, also mentioned in uh, Fox Skelly's article for the BBC is the idea that um, that scientists have been finding more bacteria that simply are able to consume pure electricity, that consume electrons when they need to. And she gives the example of a University of Cincinnati microbiologist named Annette Rowe, who's found several bacterial species that live on the ocean floor, and apparently they can live off of pure electrical current if they need to. It's not that they naturally make make their lives this way, but it seems like this is something that they're able to to sustain themselves without dying for a period of time. So if I understand correctly, this is different than an organism that just like thrives on pure electricity with no food. Uh, but there there is even evidence of like, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about these relationships between electroactive organisms and one bacterium having electricity as a waste product and then routing it to a bacterium that will accept it as, a, as an incoming energy product. And uh, there's even evidence of like cross-species or, or cross-organism type electrical grids spanning different kingdoms of life. And uh, this example being the electrical cooperation between bacteria and archaea in deep ocean floor habitats that are rich with methane. Uh, to, uh, to quote from uh, Fox Skelly's article, the archaea feed on electrons from methane, oxidizing the gas to generate carbonate. They then pass the electrons onto their partner bacteria along the nanowires, which act like power cables. Finally, the bacteria deposit the electrons onto sulfate, producing energy that the cell can use in the process. And so we don't know how far back these types of relationships go, but it's easy to imagine these these types of cooperation evolving billions of years ago, especially before Earth's atmosphere underwent the Great Poisoning when all the oxygen showed up. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to uh, get to an area that a lot of you are probably thinking about. Like, you know, if we have, we're talking about uh, uh, organisms that, uh, that that utilize electricity, that are producing uh, these these nanofilaments, uh, then there's got to be a way that we could harness that power ourselves. Put and, them to work. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what we're going to discuss when we come back. All right, we're back. So if you're listening to this this podcast uh, via some sort of an electronic device, I mean, we uh, electronics are, are kind of our thing, right, yeah. as a species. And so it stands to reason that as we discover uh, these, uh, these, these bacteria that are, that are using electricity, that are, uh, that are creating these little filaments, that we envision ways to, uh, again, harness their power. Uh-huh. I don't know about you. I listen to my podcast by plugging directly into bacterial mats, like I've got a I've got a big stromalite in my house, and I just jack in. 
Well, that's not that's not as as, as crazy distant from the real the possible realities we're going to discuss as as one might think. It's it's a little crazy, but uh, but yeah, when you when you think about these actual electroactive bacteria, th- there do seem to be some potentials. Just one example, uh, like there are all kinds of ideas where people have talked about using electroactive bacteria as as uh, potential electrical sources. But one of the many ideas I came across was to use the electrical potential of Geobacter for small-scale energy purposes in Peru. So I, I was reading a few articles from 2015 about how researchers at the University of Engineering and Technology in Peru were uh, pioneering a method to draw usable electricity directly from the soil, specifically using the outflow of electrons from the respiration of geobacters. Now, this is meaningful in in the context of what they were doing in Peru because some villages and dwellings in the Peruvian rainforest don't have connections to the electrical grid. Uh, many don't. At the time uh, they were doing this project, uh, the, the project leaders claimed that it was like 42 percent of, of villages mm-hmm. in, in the rainforest did not have connections. And those that do have connections are at risk to lose power entirely. When lines are knocked out by floods, as happened in March 2015. And so this means, of course, after it gets dark, people can't read, kids can't study for school unless they use like kerosene lamps, which are apparently unhealthy and are hard on the eyes. I can imagine that. Uh, So this method developed by UTEC in partnership with a company called FCB Mayo works to charge batteries and power LED lamps with a special bioelectric box. And the box has a plant on top with roots planted in the soil and then electrodes plunged into this grid of little soil buckets that are full of geobacters. And the metabolic interaction between the plant and the geobacters generates excess electric charge in the soil. And that electric charge gets routed up through the electrodes that are planted in the soil, uh, whisks those free electrons away to charge a battery, which in turn powers the LED lamp. Now, we're not sure how scalable this individual technology is, but it shows the general principle that you can draw small, at least small amounts of power or electricity directly from electric bacteria in the soil when other power sources are not readily available. And this seems possibly like an interesting alternative to say, you know, those the small-scale solar panels that you see being used to power individual devices or lights, you know, things like that. Yeah, like various garden gnomes and whatnot that yeah. light up. Are there garden gnomes that get power? Yeah, I think so. You see, this is like the main place I feel like you, one tends to see this sort of technology, like little little lights that go in your yard that have a little solar panel on them. You know? Uh-huh. But, um, oh, I guess I'd just never seen one mounted in a gnome. But I see it now. It can have red light-up eyes. Yeah, I mean, I assume there's a gnome. <laughs> there has to, Someone has had to have created one with a gnome. But, you know, it's one thing to, to, to power an LED lamp. But I think this does, uh, you know, drive home that even if you're only talking about producing such small amounts of electricity to power, uh, you, know, you know, very low-energy lighting effects, that still can make a huge difference in the right circumstances. Yeah, it can. And you can imagine using elements of this bacterial electrobiology in concert with other technologies 
uh, to, to build up more capabilities. Like in his Times article, Carl Zimmer mentions that a Cornell University researcher uh, named Buzz Barstow and colleagues are trying to figure out if bacteria could be of use when paired with solar panels. So not in place of them, but mm-hmm. working in concert with them. And the idea is that the solar panels would convert the sunlight into electric current, which would then be routed into bacterial wires down uh, down to these colonies of uh, bacterium called uh, Shewanella. That's the one – I mentioned earlier that was discovered in Lake Oneida, uh, Shuinella, and that could uh, use the energy from the electrons to metabolize organic compounds and turn it into fuel. Yeah, this would really be key for for carbon fixation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the study in question uh, here is a 2019 study titled "Electrical Energy Storage with Engineered Biological Systems," published in the Journal of Biological Engineering. And you know, we're essentially talking. It kind of comes back to the virus movie we're talking about because <laughs> we're essentially talking about a cybernetic energy storage system, uh-huh. a synthesis of biological and non-biological electrochemical engineering. Uh-huh. The authors point out that non-biological methods for using electricity for carbon fixation, they've started to, to match and even exceed the capability of microbes, uh-huh. but that uh, biological methods are better at pumping out the comp- sort of complex molecules that are ultimately necessary for biofuels and polymers. Mm. So it's it's kind of a way to improve uh you know the photosynthesis in in this situation like huh. you know, think of it as like photosynthesis plus or photosynthesis <laughs> 2.0 nice so it's like making an artificial tree except it's a solar panel and a bunch of bacteria or- yeah well yeah it's like it's it's part uh, bacteria part uh solar system technology and uh and and the results yeah, can, could, could help with carbon fixation. Yeah. Uh, another thing Carl mentions is that the electrical bacterial filaments could be used as some form of sensors, like a little uh, little tiny electrosensitive or conductive wires can be useful to, uh, you know, essentially for signaling purposes. Mm-hmm. He, he gives the example of, uh, you know, being attached to some kind of wearable technology that would touch the skin and these little bacterial nanowires could detect chemical changes in the properties of our sweat. And that might be biologically useful information that could be transmitted to a device that might tell you, I don't know what, you know, there's something wrong with your sweat, dude. You need to yeah, yeah. Just basically, and this gets into the whole area of like to whatever extent we can develop dependable, like real time biomonitoring, medical medical monitoring uh, uh, technology like this mm-hmm. can have a you know a huge uh, positive impact on human health. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so Carl Carl mentioned specifically the work of Derek Lovely again. Uh, yeah. uh, so he, you know, again the the guy who discovered Geobacter, and uh, and has since expanded in uh, into discovering several other microbe species, just as other researchers have also discovered other microbe species that have these same capabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's pointed out that while Geobacter's filaments are super thin, like three nanometers in diameter, some are more re- some of the more re- re- recently discovered bacteria have fatter filaments, and uh, and this is. Ex- especially useful for us if we're looking to manipulate them. If you want to manipulate them into some sort of an electronic device, like a nanowire sensor that we're talking about, it pays to have something a little on a you know a slightly larger scale so that we can we can actually work with it. Lovely and uh, and his co-authors they also point out that protein nanowire uh, like this would have a number of advantage over silicon nanowires. So it we're talking about the biocompatibility 
the state, the stability, the potential for modification into various biomolecules and, quote, chemicals of medical or environmental interest. Hmm. And plus, the sustainable method of producing these nanowires will make it easier to build the sort of devices we're trying to make and hoping to make in the future. Uh, he, he points out that we've been making thimble-sized amounts of the sort of uh, you know wire materials that we need for, for for the future we're trying to build, uh-huh. but what we need we need buckets of them. We need mm-hmm. buckets of of these nanowires, and this is a possible means by which we can grow buckets of nanowires. Oh, it almost sounds like the early penicillin problem, you mm-hmm. know, with the Oxford researchers in the lab oh, when, yeah, they, yeah. when they were working with Alexander Fleming's strain of penicillin. We talked about this in a recent episode of Invention. Uh, the, you know, they could they could create this penicillin. For from the penicillium fungus, the the mold, uh, but they couldn't make enough of it that it would be useful. Like the first time they tried to treat somebody with it who had a deadly infection, the the guy was successfully treated for a few days, but the guy with the infection eventually died because they ran out of penicillin. They just couldn't make enough of it, and they later uh, it only broke through as a medicine because they discovered a more productive strain that could make more of the stuff. Yeah, and I want to come back to the the um, this, the uh, the sustainability aspect of this too. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea here being that if you know, you could have these these devices, and when they're done, you're not just like it's not going into a dump. Right, it's not. Uh, potentially being, you know, part of uh, some sort of toxic waste, it is uh, just you know biodegrading into the environment. Oh yeah, I mean, electronic waste is actually a big deal. Like we, yeah. you know, we we don't see a lot of it, but what happens to all these electronic components when we're done with them and the thing breaks and you just throw it away? The, the possibility of being able to grow these things, I mean, obviously that's that, that would have tremendous advantage. Yeah, absolutely, and and that they'd be biodegradable. You, mm-hmm. you just you know some other bacterium just eats them up when you're done. Uh, but another thing that I've read about these electroactive ba- bacteria is that some of them are extremely good candidates for the bioremediation of waste, including toxic and radioactive waste, ah. where they can take something like you know a, a type of radioactive waste, say like a, a you know a type of uranium, and they can through their their uh, metabolic process reduce that uranium to say a less soluble form. So they're not going to completely destroy it, but they might change it into a form that makes it less uh, damaging to the environment. And the same could be true for other forms of pollution. Another, another thing I've seen it referenced is the uh, the idea of using bacteria like this to clean up oil spills. You know, they oh, can, yes. mm-hmm. can like eat eat hydrocarbons that are in places they shouldn't be. Right. Plastic waste being another, another big one. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. We've been championing fungi. Uh, on the show for a little bit here, and now it's it's uh, bacteria's time to shine. We're back in the land of Jubilix. Yeah, <laughs> Jubilix being the uh, the D and D demon lord of slimes and oozes, which in a past episode we kind of associated loosely with bacteria, and it is the arch enemy of Zugdemoy, uh, the demon lord of fungi. <laughs> I raise the flag of Jubilix for today. Yes, that's my side. <laughs> All right, so there we have it. Um, there's, you know, there, there are various areas here where we could branch off. So, if, you know, if you're interested in hearing more episodes about, about bacteria or about uh, various means of dealing with radioactive waste, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. And if you want to support the show, you know, tell some friends about it. Tell family members about it. Tell household pets about our show. <laughs> and then make sure you rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.